Hello everyone, welcome to our Saturday broadcast. Today we will be beginning with a little bit of semi-guided meditation. And then we will ask and answer questions with a priority focus on questions related to practice, one's own practice, as questions that can help the people asking them. If you're looking for answers to questions you have about your own meditation practice or spiritual practice or Buddhist practice, this is what this is for. People here helping me. We have today Chris, Jim, Ulu. So in the beginning, you're welcome to post anything in the chat. Hello, uh, comments. But ideally, we're just going to close our eyes. And begin to focus our attention on our experiences. You can start by focusing on your stomach, rising and falling. And when it rises, just say to yourself, rising. And when it falls, falling. If you can't feel it, if you're new to this technique, you can just put your hand on your stomach until you're able to feel it. You can just keep your hand there at the beginning. Just watch. The stomach rises, tensing up, say rising. And when it falls, falling. And you can start to note other experiences that occurred during the time you're focusing on the stomach. If something distracts you, anything that you notice besides the stomach, switch to focus on that and note it in the same way. If you feel pain or aching, focus on that, say pain, pain. If you feel happy or calm, focus on that, say calm, calm, calm or happy, happy until it goes away, and then just go back to the stomach. If you have thoughts about the past or future, Good thoughts, bad thoughts, doesn't matter. Whatever thoughts you might have, just say distract, uh, thinking, thinking, or distracted, distracted if there's a lot of thought. 
there's any liking or disliking, drowsiness, distraction, doubt, anything like that, focus on it. Any, any mind state of any sort, liking, wanting, disliking, boredom, sadness, worry, fear. Just make a note of it, reminding yourself of the essential nature of it, liking, liking, in order to keep yourself from getting distracted by it or caught up in it or reacting to it. If you see or hear anything, feel anything, smell anything, taste, you note all of those as well, seeing, seeing, hearing, hearing. Don't pay attention to what it is you're experiencing, the thing that you're hearing or seeing. Just remind yourself it's only seeing or hearing. Essentially, that's all it is.
Okay, so we'll continue mindful. Continue mindfully, but at this time we can begin to ask and answer questions. If you don't have any questions, just keep your eyes closed and continue being present. Once you've asked your questions, just close your eyes again and stay mindful with us. At this time, I'd ask that posts in the comments be limited to questions only, no conversation, just to keep it clean and focused. Thank you, Bhante. We do have questions. When I'm noting, I only seem to notice pain and itching. What could be done about that? Well, those are two very good objects of mindfulness. Focus your attention on whichever one is most prominent. And just say pain, pain, or if it's itching, itching, itching. Once it goes away, go back to your stomach and look for the rising, falling. If after a long time it doesn't go away, you can just go back to the rising and falling anyway. But stay with it for quite a while if it persists. I am having problems falling asleep. Somnophobia. You have talked about sleep before in relation to meditation and the amount of sleep needed. Any advice? Well, if you have, if you're afraid of sleep, it's just fear, and you should just not afraid, afraid. A bigger problem is often our our view that we need so many hours of sleep, and of course that's subjective as to what you mean by the word need. You'll often read articles where they will claim so many hours and then describe all the things that happen when you don't get that many hours and. Well, those things don't don't uh, necessitate the conclusion that you need more sleep. It just means there are going to be consequences, perhaps, if you sleep less, which you know you can generally live with. But more importantly, is the view that there you need so many hours of sleep can actually be detrimental to your sleep as it makes you stress about not getting enough, and that stress, of course, makes you more tired and unhealthy. In fact, if your mind is very clear and pure, you don't need much sleep at all. The problem, the biggest problem is that our minds and our bodies are stressed, and often stressed so much that we suffer when we're awake, and therefore need a lot of sleep to recuperate. You don't need that much if your mind is clear. And so thinking, uh, appreciating those those things allows you to let go of the stress and the fear surrounding sleep. 
you'll find that you're able to sleep better and more easily. But the, the, the solution is basically to just try and be mindful when you're not able to sleep without any desire or intention that it should help you sleep or that you should get to sleep. Try and look at those desires, the wanting to sleep and so on, the fear of sleep or fear of staying awake or whatever. Try and look at those as objects of meditation. Nothing more. As soon as I concentrate on the breath, I feel like I'm controlling the breathing. Do you have any suggestions? You should note that feeling. This is a common problem. It relates to our perceptions of self, the stress that comes in trying to control. The feeling like you're controlling is just the stress that comes from trying to control. You should just note that tension or stress, discomfort, and disliking, frustration as well. That's to be expected. It's part of learning uh, to let go and changing your perspective from one of control to one of observation and objectivity. What should I note when I don't know the right word for the feeling or experience? You can say confused or doubting. If it's a feeling, you can just say feeling. Feelings don't technically have names, so you can just note feeling when you don't you're not clear what kind of feeling it is. If it's just an experience, like you're aware of something, you can note aware, or we often say knowing, but the meaning is the same. You're aware of something, you just say aware or note the awareness. It's just a means of helping you to stay objective, to not react or get involved with it. I sometimes move between hearing, feeling, distracted, impatient, quickly. Should I latch onto one or make a general note on it all? You would either latch onto one, not latch, but focus onto one. I suppose latch is a fine word. You would fix on, on one of them and ignore the others. Or else if you have many at once, you would note distracted or overwhelmed. And try and note one until it goes away, and when it's gone, just go back to the rising, falling. It's not necessary to note every little thing. That doesn't actually help. When I hear something, instead of staying at the ear, I notice that a recognition of the sound arises. Car driving by, people talking. Should I just note knowing or keep with hearing? Again, try to just keep with hearing. If it's really a, a distracted, really, you're really focused on the other one, you can switch. But you want to try not to jump and jump and jump from one thing to another. It's not really helpful. So you can just focus on hearing and be aware of all the stuff surrounding hearing. It's still just hearing. And you seeing all that other stuff is a part of the experience of seeing more clearly and becoming more familiar with how the mind works. So it's doing its job. And just saying hearing, hearing will allow it to do its job. Again, there's no magic. It's not a magic trick where if you do it exactly right, 
it, it, something wonderful happens. The wonderful comes from being present, which is the, the noting is just a tool to facilitate that. Don't think of it as a magic, uh, some magic mantra or something. When meditating, you come to some realizations. Are these realizations again just concepts in another form? No, realizations are real. A realization is a that's a name of a type of experience. Experiences are real, but a realization is just another experience, and so you shouldn't get attached to it or become complacent because of it. It's common that when some profound realization or seemingly profound realization comes up, there's an idea that you've become enlightened in some way and people will then fixate on that or feel bad because they lost that realization. Realizations come and go, they're just experiences. It's a good sign, but that's all it is. It's not in and of itself worth anything. It just comes and goes. Recently, I've noticed that my mind is troubled by a lot of jealousy, which I know is unskillful and causes suffering, yet I'm still experiencing it. How can I work on this to purify my mind and heart? Well, be clear that if you knew it was unskillful and caused suffering, you wouldn't be giving rise to it. Or maybe that's not quite fair, but basically something like that. If you understood it clearly enough, then it wouldn't you wouldn't give rise to it. So it's not a matter of knowing, uh, or it's not about knowing intellectually, or even from experience, that it's unskillful and causes suffering, because that's still intellectual. You've had experiences of it, and then you give rise to the intellectual idea that this is bad for me, and I know because I've seen it, why is it still coming? It's because that's not really knowing or it's not knowing enough. So the only way is to continue to practice as you've been practicing. When you have the jealousy, try and focus on it and see it. Your goal is not to get rid of it. Your goal is to see it clearly, because once you do see it clearly and the whole reality surrounding it, and once you see reality in general clearly, things like jealousy cannot arise. That's the basic simplistic explanation. But it's basically that. All you need to do is keep cultivating mindfulness and clarity of mind. And when your mind is clear enough, those things just simply cannot arise. When noting, should you wait until one sensation passes away before you note a new sensation? So sensations are only one thing you note. I, I say this because there are traditions that Oh, I think you. Well, they use this word sensation as a focus, and be clear that we're not focused only on sensations. That's just one kind of thing you can experience. Seeing is not a sensation. Sensations are the physical aspects of experience. So there's pressure, there's tension, there's heat, uh, cold, hardness, softness. Those are the physical sensations. So. If you have a physical sensation, you would note that. I mean, you could just note feeling, but you can also note tense or hard or soft or cold or hot. 
And when it's gone, we would go back to the stomach and focus on that physical sensation because that's sort of our um, agreed upon base, base focus. And just focus on the rising and falling. You wouldn't try to jump from one physical sensation to another. After a long time, if the physical sensation you're focused on doesn't go away, you still would just go back after a while to the rising, falling. How do you start with meditation? Uh, well, there are many ways to start, but we have a particular tr technique that we practice in our tradition. So if you want to get started on that, you could read our booklet on how to meditate. And if you really want to get into it, after you've read the booklet, you can sign up for an at-home meditation course. We have links in the description to the video, and they're now on the screen. Um, it's all free, so feel free to look into that. In deep meditation, I saw visions which I believe are my past life memories. I saw that in my previous life I was married and was fed up at the end. I don't want to do the same in this life. Do you have any advice? About how not to get married or about how not to get up, get fed up with your marriage? They're sort of the same, I suppose, but they're two different, technically different things. So how to not get married is probably to overcome sensual desire, sexual desire. Probably. Either that or, I mean, there are other reasons people get married, so you can avoid those. But as for romantic desire, well, mindfulness will help. There are other meditations that can help as well, but I'd recommend mainly mindfulness. Uh, as for getting fed up, well, when you're fed up of things, it's a disliking of things. And so this, it's the same answer of how to overcome it, but that's technically on the other side, the aversion, the anger side. The answer is the same. You just try to be mindful and come to understand anger and the things that cause you to be angry. And if you understand them better, they won't make you angry. Also, I guess I would have advice about when you see visions is to just not seeing, seeing, and let them go. Because you can cling to those as well. How do you meditate properly when you're in difficult situations in life or when you're just having a bad day? Well, try and focus on what's behind what you call a difficult situation or what you call a bad day because you can't have a bad day and you can't be in a difficult situation. There's nothing wrong with saying that, but from a meditation, from a mindfulness perspective, it's inaccurate. Or it's imprecise. So situations are not difficult. Situations are made up of experiences, and those experiences are often a trigger for stress. And so if you focus on them mindfully, uh, you're able to avoid the stress that comes from them. And the same with a bad day, if there's disliking or frustration or whatever, you would try and note all of that. The more, and the more mindful you are as well, the better decisions you make. And so you're sometimes even able to avoid some, doing some of the things or saying some of the things that cause you to have a bad day, to regret the things you've done and said.
So I think sometimes there's a, an idea that meditation should be happy and calm and peaceful. That's not the case with mindfulness. Mindfulness is about understanding your life, your reality. And if your mind is not happy, calm, and peaceful, mindfulness isn't going to uh, help you avoid that. It's going to help you learn about that. So it can be quite unpleasant in the beginning as you learn about how your mind works and come to see how you're causing yourself stress and suffering. You've got to see all that. You've got to see clearly and go through it and change your patterns of behavior by by seeing them by focusing on them seeing the stress you're causing yourself that sort of thing how do i break the patterns of procrastination and a strong aversion to all duties and tasks big or small it's causing a lot of stress and has impacted my life well aversion is another object of mindfulness Mindfulness should help you overcome procrastination. Stress as well. Try and note to try and be mindful of what's causing you stress. Any any amount that you can be mindful will help you focus on what's important. You'll be much more tolerant. So when when the need comes to do something in a world in the world, you're not averse to doing it. You might see it as useless but you still might do it if someone else wants you or tells you to do it. Because you're not, you're, you're quite tolerant and unaffected by different from various things because you see them all as just arising and ceasing. Could it be a result of my practice that I have recently moved, have stabilized my life, and feel more at peace? If so, is this attainable by all those suffering at present? It could be. I think that's a good example of what should we would expect to happen as a result of someone's practice. Recently moving, maybe, maybe not, sometimes. Obviously, sometimes moving can caused by a change in your attitude towards life but there are lots of reasons why moving should occur if it's just it could just be a coincidence uh, but you know there are also mysterious things that happen as you change your perspective devas who maybe help out i don't know or just the way people perceive you changes and you're no longer moving in the same uh, realm i guess or as, as the people you're around, and so as a result, you shift to another realm, another level of consciousness, something like that. But as far as having a more stabilized life, that's an outcome you'd expect, and feeling more at peace, of course, because you're less reactionary to things. Was it attainable by all those suffering at present? No. Present? No. Because many people are not at all inclined, interested, or capable of capable in the sense of of bringing their minds to focus on the practice, people are not inclined in, towards that. They're not their their minds are so habitually focused on something else that they just don't even think to meditate. 
in especially most especially people who are engaging in unwholesome activities on a regular basis it's just very hard for them to cultivate mindfulness in any meaningful way I killed a mosquito the other day. I felt terrible for such an action. What can I do to remedy this? What are the karmic consequences? You can't remedy karma. Karma is something that you have performed already. It's already done. Yeah, there, but there are means of restitution, I suppose, or, or proper response, proper rehabilitation. You can make a vow to keep the five precepts. You can wish well for the mosquito that you killed, the being that was that mosquito, wherever they are now. Wish for them to be happy, and you can include them in your prayers, so to speak. You know, in that way, just every day wishing for them to be happy and free from suffering. Karmic consequences, you're already experiencing them, the guilt and the, the, the upset about it. Uh, guilt, I suppose, not exactly, but what lead, what causes the guilt, the unpleasantness of having to think about it, that makes you feel guilty and upset, and hatred for yourself and that sort of thing. So try and be mindful of those things. It's just you start to see it's changed your mind a little bit. Your mind has become a little bit polluted by that act. That's the main result. So just try and learn to overcome that in your mind. I'm quite keen to indulge in sensual pleasures, noting pleasure and wanting don't seem to change this very much. Should I expect a change, or what is then the purpose of meditating on the pleasure? The purpose is to see it more clearly. Part of seeing that it doesn't change that that's a part of the realization that's part of the understanding that we're aiming for it shows it's what we call non-self that you're not in control of your emotions and seeing that you're not in control of your emotions helps you to wake up and and realize that they're unwieldy it helps you overcome them because you start to realize it's not actually you it's like a monster you've created through your habits. And this monster is its like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. This monster comes out and does horrible things to get what it wants. So just seeing like that, seeing that you're not in control is an important part of the realization. And you should expect change as a result of that. The problem usually is, unless you're doing intensive practice, when you're indulging in sensual pleasure, you're going to lose or counteract a lot of the progress you might make by seeing clearly in meditation. If you truly want immediate results on, a, on an appreciable level, intensive meditation is really the way to go doing intensive courses, spending some serious time changing your habits. Our habits are often deeply ingrained. Sensual pleasure is one of the deepest ingrained. So it's uh, a hard one to overcome. When you mention problems are only problems because it's our perspective, 
Is no experience inherently positive or negative? So the experiential side of it is just an experience. Um, it's hard, a bit hard to answer because experience is a bit more complicated than that. So when, when there's a reaction to an experience, you're experiencing that as well, but your reaction can be a bad thing. It, it, I mean, it can be objectively uh, uh, understood to be a bad thing because it causes suffering as a result. So if you get angry, that's you're experiencing the anger. And, but the anger is a bad thing. But what I would say is your perspective on things should never be as negative or positive. So it's not a matter of things being inherently positive or negative. That's just a philosophical uh, uh, philosophical question. And we're not really interested in that. A, a practical answer, a practical answer is that, again, you, you shouldn't experience things as positive or negative you should try to see them just as they are even anger don't have some prejudice against anger just focus on the anger and say angry angry it will help you to see more clearly because things like anger are incompatible with clarity with objectivity of course because they're partial and so they can't they, they can't coexist so when you cultivate habits of clarity and objectivity Things like anger and greed, they just have no place in your mind. Why is idle speech an unwholesome action? Simply because it distracts the mind, keeps you from focusing on reality. It encourages delusion and it's a breeding ground for defilements. You start talking about politics or... Like we were talking this morning a little bit about uh, COVID, and it's it's hard not to get caught up in, uh, you know, worldly discussion, and we have to be very careful to be clear about what's Buddhist about a conversation. What, oh, I mean, what's useful about a conversation? Because if you get caught up in concepts. And that's where all this anger and and um, militarism comes from. Us and them. You get the ideas of me and mine and us and them. We start hating people and so on. So idle speech is just a breeding ground for that. Technically speaking, idle speech is a very mild, bad thing. It's a sign that you're still not an arahant if you engage in idle speech but it's not a sign of anything worse than that, not necessarily. Is more lucid dreaming an indicator for progress? It's an indicator of, of concentration. So no, not necessarily of progress. It usually comes, it, it often comes hand in hand with people practicing meditation or some spiritual practice because they start to develop stronger concentration that bleeds over into their dreams, but that's all. In this practice, no, it's not precisely a sign that you're getting, your mind is more clear, and that you're more free from defilements, not necessarily.
I'm finding many benefits in informal meditation. Quality is improving. Could you list some higher quality, great, appreciable powers that formal meditation has, not achievable by the informal one? Well, the first one is just a conceptual sense that the meditator gets when doing a formal practice. When you're doing a formal meditation session, just the sense that you're engaged in practice creates a, a greater um, focus. You're, le you be, you're, you're, you're less liable to distraction. I mean, it's a minor thing, but it, it can be quite helpful, just the psychological awareness because of the determination, really. You've made a determination to focus your attention on, focus your efforts on cultivating mindfulness for a period of time. And that determination is one of the ten paramis, the ten perfections that the Buddha cultivated. I mean, it's a, it's a good thing. It's a powerful thing, determination. Um, but the other thing, of course, is that because of the simplicity of the formal practice, it's much easier, it's much more streamlined, the process of uh, cultivating clarity or any, or any meditation quality, not just the ones we practice. When you're trying to build a habit, if you do intensive practice on developing that habit, it of course happens a lot more quickly with a lot less interruptions and because of the simplicity and the, the secluded nature of, of formal meditation there's far less interruptions and uh, counterproductive mind states far less than you'd find in, in, in daily life it's also a lot more challenging because you're forcing yourself to some extent um, to not follow after, you're putting yourself in a position where you can't get what you want, where you can't escape what you don't want, and so you're forced to confront things that you normally want to run away from, or or assuage that when you, when you feel desire, you want to appease your desire, get what you want. When you can't get that, you go through withdrawal symptoms, making formal meditation quite powerful in helping you to withdraw to to give up sensuality to change your habits if you just are always following after your habits even if you're trying to be mindful of them you're going to continue to reinforce those habits so by not engaging them you're you're artificially creating the situation like going through rehab where you have to face your desires without uh augmenting them or, or encouraging them. How can we translate the Brahma-vihara into today's reality? How can we practice those qualities? Well, there's nothing about today's reality that uh, it's really different from in the time of the Buddha. I'm not quite clear on the question. There are lots of teachings out there that talk about how to practice the Brahma-viharas. I'd recommend looking them up. 
Mahasi Sayadaw wrote a book on the Brahma Viharas that's really, really pretty good. Gives you a good idea of the sorts of practices you could undertake. It's not a hard thing to learn how to practice. It's just um, something that we don't often do and we'd benefit if we were to practice them. So look it up and you can learn some of the mantras on how to practice the Brahma Viharas and just recite those mantras to yourself. They help you remind yourself of the qualities of mind that you are aiming for. How does passion help to attain nirvana quickly? It doesn't. Passion is what keeps us from attaining nirvana. Nirvana is in fact quite defined as the extinguishing of well, not exactly the extinguishing of passion, but it's you know it's caught up, it's completely as a result of the extinguishing of passion. So I'm not quite sure of the question. I know I shouldn't say how do I, but how do I actually gain clarity in life? More specifically, how do I remain at peace while I'm on the path to self-discovery and making a career by working hard? So basically the question is how do you balance uh, livelihood and practice? A livelihood should be conducive to practice. It shouldn't have to be directly related to your practice necessarily. Even a, a monk's livelihood of, let's say, teaching the Dhamma, well, that's maybe not fair, but like going for alms round, a monk will go out in the village and receive alms. It's not exactly related to one's practice. So it's related to food. It's related to getting food to eat. And so you go out to get food to eat and people are kind and their spiritual practice is giving. So being lucky in that way, you get food as a result. Um, you do something that other people have a need for or a desire or, and so they give you money as a result. There's no need for that to exactly be a, a practice, but of course you can be mindful while you're doing your work, whatever your work is. But it should be, um, as I say, conducive to practice in the sense of not being overly distracting if you can help it, but more importantly, not being inherently unwholesome. So there's certain livelihoods that you should absolutely refrain from because they require you to be unwholesome. If possible, you want to try to avoid those. Or, yeah, I mean, if they require, then it's absolutely going to be a problem. But in most cases, it's more about trying to modify or or condition your, your work so that you don't give rise, so they aren't triggered, so that you don't trigger the unwholesomeness through your work. And that can often take a bit of practice cultivating new ways of working. Um, but ultimately, don't, don't think that about work itself essentially being a, an obstacle to your path. It's just a reality. It's a part of your reality. And so incorporating it into your practice in terms of being mindful while you work, but also trying to sort of compartmentalize. It's not exactly compartmentalized, but be aware that during the time you're working, you're not going to be able to be so mindful. And so you make that up and you can reasonably make it up by then spending some time doing formal meditation or also being as mindful as you can outside of work and outside of formal practice. 
when you're walking down the street or sitting in a car or on the bus or so on. Also, there's things like taking vacations. If you have a chance, take a vacation. Go and actually do an intensive course. You'll find that gives you a good, solid foundation to then take back into your life and be more mindful. Is it of benefit to join a Buddhist community to help with the practice? It feels like it would have a potential for attachments. More so than not joining a Buddhist community. I mean, there's a potential for attachments, not because of the things we do, but because of the nature of our mind. All things considered, joining an actual actual Buddhist community um, is is a good thing. Now, one of the things that you may be thinking of and that you should, of course, keep in mind is that community itself is potentially dangerous, and that's possibly what you're thinking of. The fact that it's Buddhist is, of course, a good thing, but some a community can call itself Buddhist and still engage in practices that are not Buddhist. So a community, I mean, at the worst, could still be caught, caught up in sensuality or anger or infighting. There are community, there are Buddhist communities that are divided. There were even in the time of the Buddhas, Buddha, Buddhist communities that were divided and a lot of infighting and the buddha just had to leave them because they wouldn't even listen to him um, but at the very least and and what's much more common is just people distract each other and people with the, with good intentions due to the nature of community they they end up dragging each other down and so the best kind of community from a buddhist perspective is a community of people that generally leave each other alone and don't get caught up in each other's lives beyond helping each other you know, with, with practical chores and that sort of thing. But don't sit around chatting or talking or, or gossiping or so on. So there, there's that danger of community. But of course, the great benefit of a actual Buddhist community is the wholesomeness involved, the opportunity to help each other with, their, with your practice, the opportunity to have an example and be an example for others. Our mutual support of each other's practice is invaluable and, and the teaching and the reminders that go on even some of the rituals that go on are are conducive to remind you of the practice so if you can find a community like that and one that cherishes and, and holds sacred the practice as, as as far as not interrupting each other and getting in each other's way then that community is really almost essential to have something like that as a as a support for your practice. Doing it all on your own is very, very difficult. I don't wish to worship Buddha. Is this only for some traditions? When joining a session recently, I felt uncomfortable when he was being praised. Is this okay? Yeah, no one. There's no requirement that you worship the Buddha. A lot of us do worship the Buddha because we think he's praiseworthy. If you feel, if that makes you feel uncomfortable, I mean, you have to look at that in yourself. It shouldn't make you uncomfortable because other people praise someone, especially someone like the Buddha. So just look at how you feel uncomfortable and try to be mindful of that. If it felt like somehow you were expected to be as praiseworthy, well, that's a different thing. 
if there's peer pressure in that way. I don't know. I, I don't know that that's usually the case. It's more like you feel uncomfortable and because of your own attachment, I suppose. So try and look at that, why, why someone else's activity might make you feel uncomfortable. How do you deal with sights and videos that say to overcome fear and anxiety you need to face the fearful stimulus, but you don't know where the negative emotions are coming from and you still feel bad? I feel like I am one of those sights and videos. You might even be talking about me, when you, about our videos when you say that. So the point that you don't need to know where things come from Exactly. Um, what you need to do is see the things that make you afraid and anxious clearly. When you see those things, those things that make you afraid and anxious, once you see them clearly, they can no longer cause fear and anxiety. That's all you need. Once you have a, a perspective on reality that allows you from moment to moment to see clearly, fear and anger and so many other bad things can't come. That's the real solution. So the reason for facing things that cause fear is to cultivate that clarity of mind. It's to overcome the delusion, the darkness that you're in that leads you to fear things that are not worth fearing because nothing is worth being afraid of or anxious about. There's no reason ever to be afraid or anxious. Those are just caused by darkness, by not seeing clearly. So you have to fo focus not just on things that make you afraid, but on all things. And when you learn to be, generally speaking, clearly aware of your experiences, you know, again, things like fear and anxiety cannot exist. Could one become an arhant by meditating as a lay person? Yes. There's nothing about that. Of course, it's generally more difficult, and if you really want to, it's not about being a lay person or a monk, but if you're living in the world, it's going to be much, much harder. I would like to try an intensive course, but being keen on pleasures, I think I might not succeed very much, but I could try. In your opinion, how many days would be a doable goal? Oh, I wouldn't worry too much about that. If you feel like you're able to do meditation, to practice meditation, um, it's not as hard. I mean, it's it's a challenge to do. It's a challenge. It feels challenging, but to actually commit and and finish for most people is not that great of a challenge. Meaning, it's not that common for people to run away from the course. What I recommend usually is people to do our at-home course first, because that develops in you the ability to practice. And once you have that ability, doing an intensive course is actually not that hard. What we have found is people who didn't do that at-home course first had a much greater uh, relatively greater uh, percentage or chance of of quitting early. So try and learn how to meditate on your own through a booklet and through an at-home course. 
And once you've done that, you'll find intensive practice is not so scary. How do we come to know the truth about the rebirth karma? For instance, how do we know that beings who are close to enlightenment won't be reborn as animals? Is this something possible to know? Uh, it's really only possible to know if you're very wise. You might have to be a Buddha to know whether someone is not. I mean, that's to know absolutely, but especially about someone else. But to know for yourself, it's not that hard to have an understanding of where you're going to go for someone who's done intensive meditation because there's a clarity of mind that just doesn't it doesn't fit with those realms. To be an animal, to be reborn an animal, you have to have a greatness of delusion. To be reborn as a ghost, you have to have a great affinity for greed, uh, clinging. When to be born in hell, you have to have a great amount of anger. And so uh, as people practice on the path, they see that they're just not of that inclination anymore. Of course, it is, of course, highly possible to overestimate, but it's usually more the case that you overestimate thinking that you've become enlightened and you're never going to be states, but that's only because you've reached a state where you're kind of safe in this life, right? Your mind is wholesome and you see that and you think that somehow that means that you're enlightened and you'll never be reborn in those states, but most likely it still means that you're not going to be reborn in those states in the next life, but it's still very difficult to to know and to understand. Ultimately, the, the best reassurance is to keep practicing and to cultivate greater clarity. What can a person do if you have excessive sexual desires? I meditate, but it's a consistent problem for me. Yeah, well, seeing that it's out of your control is again a part of the practice, so don't be too concerned with that. You can be a little concerned if you're engaging and when you're engaging in your sexual desires, but don't let it become a, a boogeyman of some sort where it just feels like you're a terrible person for doing what you do. Try and just learn to be more mindful. There's only one way, and it's something you have to do, whether you procrastinate or do it slowly or whether you do it quickly. So you, how much are you meditating? Are you, are you doing intensive meditation courses? What sort of meditation are you doing? If you're interested, you might try our technique if you haven't. But again, it's one of the hardest ones to overcome, so be patient and keep practicing. But don't don't expect for it to go away or try to make it go away. That shouldn't be your focus. Your focus should be again on seeing it more and more clearly. As once there arises that clarity, or as there arises that clarity, the capacity to in, indulge or, or desire for sensuality is reduced. I'm currently following a meditation. And I know it takes time to get results, but how can I know I'm doing it right or wrong? 
You're doing it right in the moment that your mind is clear. Try and just focus on the moments that your mind is engaged with the experience. I don't know what meditation you're doing, but if you're practicing our technique, it would be when you make the note, you say, for example, pain, pain, and your mind is clearly aware of the pain as pain. It's going to be complicated because there's going to be reactions to the practice. There's going to be worry about uh, the three characteristics and reactions to the three characteristics that'll make you think you're doing something wrong when in fact you're seeing what you're expected to see. But try and just be open to what you're going to experience. Learning about the three characteristics is useful for this specifically because as you intellectually come to appreciate the three characteristics, you're more able to identify when you do experience them and realize, oh yeah, this is just impermanence. There's nothing wrong with my practice. This chaos is just the nature of things. It's unpredictable. And when it's unpleasant, when it's not the way you want, don't be discouraged. Start to see that, yes, this is the problem. When I cling to things, I suffer. Not because of the way they are, but because of the way I am. There's nothing wrong with the practice even then. It's just your own attachments that you're seeing. And when you can't control things, you're frustrated because things aren't going the way you want and they're they're not disappearing when you want them to, not coming when you want them to, that your mind isn't under your control. This is seeing non-self. How can I balance mindfulness with decision-making? Having to factor in the future impact of the decision moves me away from the present. Can a decision be made entirely in the present moment? No, there's some conceptual thinking that has to go on. Conceptual thinking isn't unwholesome necessarily. You just have to be mindful surrounding it. So when there is worry or desire or so on, try and be mindful of that and try and be mindful of the thoughts. The thoughts basically come on their own and then you just be mindful of them. As you're mindful of them, you'll find the thoughts going in the proper direction without any greed or anger or delusion. Decision-making is just another experience, something to be mindful of. So it's not about factoring in the future or not factoring in the future. It's about how you react to your experiences. And if you're mindful, you can prevent yourself from becoming biased or stressed or upset. Thank you, Bhante. Those are the questions we're prepared to ask today. Great. Thank you all. Good good questions. Thank you all for coming out. Great turnout. Have a good week, everyone. And thank you all for, for your help, Chris, Ulu, Jim. Sadhu. Sadhu.